and uh, invite the rest of us to turn in our Bibles to Book of Luke, Luke 1, 26 through 38, and uh, Emily's song that she sang really fits uh, the text this morning and the breath of heaven, the conception of Mary by the Holy Spirit is referred to in this text, and so an opportunity to uh, reflect deeply upon that this morning. And before we do so, I'm going to just take a moment to pray. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to sing truth in song and to hear truth sung to us. Lord, it is it is not my capacity to bring the word to listeners in such a way that they will change or that they will respond. I leave that to your breath, the breath of heaven, to move within people's hearts. I pray, dear Lord, that you would speak through this sermon that I have prepared, but if there is another aspect that needs to be understood and heard, that it would go beyond what I've prepared, and I pray that our hearts would be ready to receive the word, and may you make us humble and to respond with hearts of faith, and we know that we can do nothing without you, and so it's to you we look with all of our hearts, for we need you to fill and to move us and to change us to become more like your Son. And thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit. It's in your name we pray. Amen. In the animal kingdom, the birds challenged all the animals of the earth to make a baby for mankind. And as the story goes, uh, they knew this to be an impossible task, and so they teased the animals and they laughed and... So it was left up to the bees, and the bees make the babies in honeypots, and when the baby outgrows the honeypot, a stork delivers the baby to their parents at just the right time. No fables are useful when talking about something as delicate as conception, but make no mistake, The miraculous conception of Jesus, or as some would call it, the virgin birth, should never be discussed as if it were a mere fable. Mary's conception was deeper and even more striking than the elderly Elizabeth, who we looked at last Sunday. It was more striking, it was deeper in significance, but who would believe it? In 1908, Charles Augustus Briggs, he was a professor at Union Theological Seminary in Manhattan, he wrote this, he said, there could be no doubt that there are grave difficulties in the minds of many educated men and women of this generation in the way of their acceptance of this doctrine of the virgin birth. Briggs was writing an article for an American Journal of Theology in opposition to the historic doctrine of the virgin birth. Why would a seminary professor 
in a chair of theology seek to undermine the universal belief in the doctrine of the virgin birth? For that matter, why would perhaps even some today, like North Point Church, give Andy Stanley pastoral leeway to affirm someone's homosexuality, even though it flies in the face of historic Christianity? It's remarkable that we see these kinds of things occur, but the question is, why does it occur? I would say that in short, it occurs because we want the wise, we want the noble, we want the powerful to approve of us. That's an idolatry. In fact, it is a desire to be respected that is a trap. The pride of life is like a Venus flytrap. It lures the proud in and then it snaps hard. And when it snaps, there is like a shaft that goes right down to the pit of hell. Pride is contrary to the gospel of Jesus Christ. God chose what is low. He chose what is despised in the world even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Our text this morning describes a miraculous conception and exalts the humility of faith. Let's read the account this morning and we will come back to this text and we will see how essential It is for us to take with humility that which we don't understand, to bury it deep within our hearts, and to respond to the goodness of God that He would design such a thing for us. Let's read the text. Verse 26, it says, In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to the city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. In his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age also has conceived a son, and in the sixth month with her who is called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Everything in this text that describes the miraculous conception exalts the humility 
of responding by faith to what God sovereignly does. I want us to consider the details of this miraculous conception in Mary. And as we look at the the story details, I want to highlight aspects along the way in which Mary demonstrates her humility and responsiveness of faith. And then we're going to consider, towards the end of the sermon, the application of this to the reality is that the Holy Spirit who conceives within the womb of Mary, also conceives within the soul, the truth by the Holy Spirit. And we also have to have the same spirit as Mary to receive it with the humility of faith. And so as we walk through this text, at least you'll know where I'm headed as we go through it. The miraculous conception of Jesus and Mary. Elizabeth, by this time, is five months pregnant as of verse 25. Verse 25, uh, just before we come to this text, and now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel comes, sent from God. We left Zechariah, who was speechless, and a mother, another month slips by, and we learn in verse 27 that this miracle occurs to a woman of marriageable age, whose name is Mary. This is the same angel that appeared to Zechariah. Now this angel has appeared in the north country, and it is in the notorious town of Nazareth. You thought I was going to say Carbondale, didn't you? But Elizabeth was probably Mary's cousin, but would likely have been an aunt to Mary, and this would have put Elizabeth maybe perhaps in her 50s. Mary here is a tender 13 or 14 years of age. And in those days, children had to grow up quickly. Girls were considered, sorry girls, liabilities if they had not found a husband. But Mary here is very fortunate because she has found a husband. Mary was betrothed in marriage. Verse 27, we learn this detail that Mary was betrothed, it says, to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And we have to enter into the world of the Middle East to gather and understand what's going on here and how significant it was. Uh, She was legally committed to be married by her parents to this man named Joseph. She was indeed very fortunate to have a marriage already arranged. Now, betrothal periods typically were a year in length, and it gave the groom's parents enough assurance that she really was a virgin, and it also gave the prospective daughter-in-law a time to prepare for the wedding feast and also to anticipate new living arrangements that would be prepared. At the end of the year, at an undisclosed time, like almost like a surprise, you kind of knew that we're getting close to the wedding date, and in the evening, the groom would arrive with his groomsmen, and the wedding party would assemble, and she would be carried off into the evening towards the groom's home, and a wedding ceremony 
would, would occur at that time. It was a joyful experience. It was something that young women looked forward to as a unique experience. Now, in verse 27, we also read that Mary was a virgin. In the Greek, the word that's used for virgin is the word Parthenon. Now, you might recognize that word as being associated with a Greek goddess temple in Athens. Uh, and the Parthenon was a nickname for the virgin Athena's home. And that's just the word association, so that you understand where it was coming from. Legally, she was practically married to Joseph. And this occurred once a bride price was established. If you remember the story of Jacob and Leah and Rachel in the Old Testament, a bride price was established of seven years' service by Jacob for the opportunity to marry one of Laban's daughters. Um, it was quite a, a substantial financial arrangement that was created. At this point, a bride price was already established. It was sealed. It was witnessed. And it would take a bill of divorce to be written and then submitted to justices who would then read charges, formal charges, in which perhaps she was being accused of being unfaithful, committing fornication before the time of their wedding. And so, in light of all this, she is truly fortunate because there's quite a degree of detail that has to go into this formal arrangement. And she's now preparing to be a bride. In verse 28, we see the angel announce to her that she is the object of God's grace. In verse 28, uh, we read these words, And he, that is Gabriel, came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. Now, Gabriel had just been in the temple, in the holy place, six months prior. The holy place was gold-layered splendor. It was radiant. There was not a lot of light. There was the menorah that was burning. But all of the glow would have glowed off. The gold and transcendent light would have been appearing. Here, Gabriel is appearing in a girl's bedroom, possibly even at the foot of her bed. There's a significance to the lowliness in which this angel transitions and goes to meet this little, this young woman ready, preparing to be a bride. And Gabriel greets her as, O favored one, the Lord is with you. And truly, she is favored. She is favored just as much as Zechariah and Elizabeth were favored. They both were the objects of undeserved grace of God. And the Lord was with that older couple just as much as God was with this young lady. Even though they had not received the gift of a child, they had been living devoted lives. They were, they were blessed beyond measure with the, what obedience to the Torah would bring to them. 
Now, some translations will have the phrase that she was called blessed among women, that she is blessed among women. Yes, the truth is that she, she was happy because she was receiving the flow of undeserved love from God. It is from God from whom all blessings flow. And it is the height, though, of absurdity, though, that we should seek any particular grace from her. God, in his mercy and his grace, has given to us a high priest in the name of Jesus Christ, and to him we turn, because it is out of him all blessings flow. I think I'm speaking to the particular era of the Catholic Church in this moment, Mary should not be, in our minds, considered a mediatrix of any grace, nor should, be, should she be enveloped into a particular relationship inside the Trinity. At the turn of the Reformation, the Reformers were deeply concerned with how the Catholic Church was revering Mary. One Reformer named John Calvin said that with extraordinary ignorance, have the Papists, by their enchanter's trick, changed this salutation into a prayer and have carried their folly so far that their preachers are not permitted in the pulpit to implore the grace of the Spirit except through their Hail Mary. Martin Luther also said, we have an obligation to honor Mary. Well, that's true. But listen carefully. He said, but be careful to give her honor that is fitting. Unfortunately, I worry that we give her too high an honor for she is accorded much more esteem than she should be given or she should be accounted to herself. Christ is diminished by those who place their hearts more upon Mary than upon Christ himself. Now I say this in hoping you grasp the significance that she was just a simple young lady but yet the object of God's favor because she was chosen among women to carry the Christ child within her. But she, with a lowly heart, she was being indwelt by a child filled with the Holy Spirit, and we also have the Holy Spirit that will never leave us nor forsake us. Mary was a special girl, but Mary also was very troubled. In the moment, verse 29, we read the response in which she says, uh, the, the, the author says, but she was greatly troubled and, at the saying, and she tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. It literally means she was agitated. She was agitated. Now, jump scares always get me. As soon as I hear the music change, I gotta put my coffee down, or that coffee will be all over me in the couch. She was agitated because she had received a salutation not from a man or a human being, but from an angel of God. And the angel bids her not to fear and reminds her that she is receiving favor from God. And I would say that in spite, of, in spite of what the charismatic movement might present to us, when we are in the actual presence of God, 
or one of his messengers. Fear is the appropriate response. There is no doubt that we will tremble, but God will then give us a clear assurance that we need not be afraid. Mary was greatly troubled because this was outside of her normal experience. Mary was described as being overshadowed. Verse 31 to 37, a longer stretch of verses, but let's look at them one more time. And in verse 30, the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. And he will be great, and we be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be uh, no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the, children, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And the, behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. Now, the angelic announcement was that of a miracle, a miracle, a miracle of conception. Now, like Elizabeth, Mary will not be free to name this child just anything that she would want to name this child. She's given a very specific name to bestow on this child, for her child would be the heir of the Davidic throne that had been promised centuries before. Jesus is going to be called the Son of the Most High. Now, I'm not going to wade into all of these details. You can look at some of these yourself when you go home this afternoon. But there is reference in this to the, David, to the prophecy in the book of Daniel in which the Most High is referred to. And Daniel saw someone like the Son of Man ascending into the throne room of God to receive an eternal kingdom. This angel is aware of the details that had been presented to Daniel several hundred years ago. Here with Mary, he's communicating the continuity between the prophecy in ancient days to the child that she is going to be privileged to bear. Now, I, I think that we can forgive Mary for being a little bit hung up on this whole thing. You know, becoming pregnant without being married to a man? I don't think we can blame her. It doesn't happen every day. In fact, it doesn't happen. I mean, even the Petri just knows that. And so she asks, well, how will this be since I'm a virgin? And the response to the angel is that the Most High will overshadow her as the Holy Spirit comes upon her in verse 35. Now, the word picture that Gabriel uses is the word kind of overshadow. That's a really fascinating word because the sun 
the sun casts its rays on the earth normally. Today's an overcast day, so we're not getting the enjoyment of the sun. But when the sun shines upon the earth, the grass grows, it flourishes. And a cloud that enter, goes in between the sun and the, the normal ways in which things grow and develop is an indication that there is an interruption. The normal process is interrupted. Mary will conceive because there is an interruption in the normal process. God is going to step in and interpose and ensure and step into the natural world and do something that just doesn't ever happen. In other words, God is going to form life outside of the laws of nature just as he did in the beginning. Now, I find it interesting that Mary, when hearing about Elizabeth's pregnancy, which at this point is described as she's six months along, what we're hearing is something that is considered to be a normal process. Yes, there was an age issue, but somehow the, the process of birth occurred under the normal circumstances. This is totally different. And so, in response to the, the innocent not understanding and, and hearing about it, the angel says to her, nothing will be impossible with God. And as she hears this, Mary is exalted through the humility of faith. In verse 38, we read the incredible humility of this young lady. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And then the angel departed. How great would it be if we all had that same response to the Word of God? I don't understand what you would want me to do, Lord, but nevertheless, let it be to me as you see fit. Mary is not exalted because the Catholic Church decreed that she was immaculately conceived herself. If she had been conceived in a way such as to free her from original sin, she wouldn't have questioned Gabriel. She would have said to Gabriel, of course, I expected this would be the case. She would have not had questions. And so the reality is that she responded with a humility of faith, the kind of faith, that we all must express if we are to be born again of the Holy Spirit. The object of our faith is not our own effort. The object of our faith is God's words which promise. And God must be the object of the humility of our faith. If we're looking to God to do something internally inside of us that we cannot completely understand, we have to, with humility, say, 
it's okay. I'm good with that. I want what you are going to give to me, Lord, even though I don't understand it. And the miraculous conception of humility of faith can occur in the soul. And so the application from this text that I want to bring to us is that God is offering to do something inside of us that we don't normally can comprehend. Now, a wise man who wrote many of the Proverbs in the, in the Bible said this, and talking about normal biology, in Proverbs 30, verses 18 to 19, the wise man said, three things are too wonderful for me, four I do not understand. The way of an eagle in the sea, the way of a serpent upon the rock, the way of the ship on the high seas, and the way of a man with a virgin. He's just talking about biology. He's saying, it is a miracle that conception occurs. Think about how much greater it is when there is a spiritual conception. The birth of faith is a biblical metaphor in the Bible that's recorded in John chapter 3. Nicodemus was amazed by what Jesus was saying. Jesus insisted that a new birth must occur to enter into the kingdom of God. It also was required in order for him to even be able to see the kingdom of God. Now, I believe it's a mystery that we, sadly, some, some hymns have, we've kind of put some hymns by the wayside for reasons I'm not going to go into here. But in my youth, I remember singing this song, I Know Whom I Have Believed. I know not how the Spirit moves, convincing men of sin, revealing Jesus through the Word, creating faith in Him. That's speaking of the mystery. I can't explain how it occurs, and neither could the songwriter. But what I do see in Mary's response is the attitude of reception and ability to, to respond because she had a deep humility that allowed her to see with eyes of faith. And I want to note that she concealed the glory of God in her heart. She had been the recipient not just of a baby in her womb, but with an angelic announcement of the greatness of who this child would be. Mary is a chaste young lady, and, but unlike her, her cousin Elizabeth, this is a complication for Mary. Elizabeth, all her life, all of her married life, wanted to be pregnant. This is complicated. If she's pregnant, she could, Joseph could divorce, she could break up this whole arrangement. This is not necessarily exciting news. Would Joseph think that this is believable? What would her parents say? I'm sure these thoughts must have moved through her mind. Possibly later, in verse 39, we read that uh, in those days Mary arose and went with haste to the hill country to, to the town of Judah to be with her cousin Elizabeth. Perhaps she recognized that things had already started to change within her. She's got to get to a safe place so that people won't assume the worst. 
But in all of this, Mary submits her emotions, her will, her fears to God. And she conceals in her heart the truth and coming in genuine faith I believe requires that we also conceal the truth deep within our hearts and not let it go. If the virgin birth is true, then Jesus is Lord of all. This means that Jesus is the Son of the Most High and He has a kingdom that will never end. It also means He's coming to judge the world of sin. But yet He has extended mercy through His Son so that all who call upon His name might be saved. And that's the glory of God to provide a way of escape through His Son. It's a truth. But you've got to take it and conceal it in your heart and not let it go like a, like a slippery fish. You've got to take it into your heart. How? How do you receive it? I believe through the conviction that this is a good thing. That divine goodness, I believe, is the entrance of faith. That you believe that this is a good thing and you want it. It enters into your heart And that's the start of saving faith. You see, if God promises anything that we can't comprehend, what are we tempted to do? We're tempted to doubt. Oh, you know, it's not every day that we see a virgin birth. It's not every day that we see loaves be multiplied for thousands. Doubt comes from ascribing power nothing more to than what we can sense or receive. Think about the life of Abraham. Abraham was in such a predicament, he had been told by God that he would receive a child. He would receive a child, and year after year went, and finally he, in frustration, gave out all of his anguish to the Lord, and the Lord turned to him and said, look, who made these stars? Who did this? And Paul says that when Abraham recognized all the immense power that resides outside of himself, he gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that what he had promised, he was also able to perform. Paul said in another place, speaking from his own personal sense about God's ability to save him, he said, I know whom whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him. You see, the power of God, if viewed through the eyes of faith, it is efficacious, it is saving, and it will bring you safely home. Because you're not looking at yourself. You're really looking at Him. Who has the power 
to create life in a womb, apart from the normal circumstances of a man and a woman. And if you can see your need for atonement by the blood of Jesus Christ to forgive you of sin, if you see that you have this need, then your heart, if it's saving faith, will not resist it. Instead, you will rejoice and say, thank you. I am persuaded that you are able to forgive me of all my sin and take me into glory when I pass from this life. That is the reception of the Holy Spirit within your soul. You're concealing and treasuring the glory of God within your heart. And you don't reject it. You say, this is good. This is what I've been looking for all of my life. And here it is. It's mine. That's saving faith. You see, everything about the miraculous conception, I believe, exalts the humility of faith. You won't be able to say that's good if your heart's filled with pride. If you are humble like this young lady who says, be it unto me as you've described. I can't wrap my head around this, but I'm going to receive it. That is the humility of saving faith. You see, if Jesus was not born of a virgin, we have to ask ourselves logically, well, then who was his father? And there is no answer to that question that will leave the gospel intact. See, the virgin birth explains how Christ could both be God and man, how he is without sin and that the entire work of salvation was a gracious act. If Jesus was not born of a virgin, then he had a human father. And if Jesus was not born of a virgin, as the Bible teaches, the Bible is full of lies. If Jesus was not a virgin, then why should we believe that he arose from the grave? Why should we believe that he brings us eternal life? Why would we even think that he answers our prayers? If Jesus was born by normal means, then your faith is no different than anyone else. Why are you here? Are you here because you're treasuring the truth of who Jesus is in your heart? Do you see it as a good thing that you need for your life? A virgin birth says a lot about who Jesus is, what he came to do, and why you can trust him with all of your life. In other words, if you are trusting Jesus with your life, then nothing in your life happens without purpose or according to his plan. I cannot think of any doctrine of the Bible that requires someone to really genuinely humble themselves like the virgin birth. But don't let pride get in your way Rather, rejoice in the power of God to do what we can even think or imagine in our own hearts. It is God's goodness to provide a way of escape for us. If nothing is impossible with God, then God is completely trustworthy and worthy 
of all our worship and all of our love. Let's pray.